Shalom, everybody, and welcome to the Yishai Fleischer Show, broadcasting live from the Vey Ilan, a hotel outside of Jerusalem, a beautiful hotel with a view onto the whole coastal plain. Every morning I see all of Tel Aviv, and every evening I see all the lights of this giant metropolitan area. I'm looking at it right now, and there are birds walking around, and uh, it's just a beautiful day, and it's been cold days here in Eretz Yisrael for the first part of Passover of Pesach, and now today, obviously warming up, feels so good to have that good sun. You know, we love all weather in Eretz Yisrael, especially rain, and it's been such a blessed year of rain. In fact, yesterday at the Western Wall, uh, for the priestly blessing, uh, where 40,000 people, 50,000 people showed up, it was really awesome. They also did a special prayer to thank God for the rain. So that was really, really for the great rain that we had throughout the year. So that was very special for our family. We really enjoyed that. We thought it was very meaningful to really like thank God for the blessings. And I want to thank God for the blessings of Passover, of spending time with the family, uh, of this very amazing holiday of the Matzot, of the holiday of faith. Uh, and uh, and of the Exodus, and I'm looking forward to the second part of the uh, Passover holiday, which is the the seventh day, which is really all about the the actual splitting of the Red Sea and that whole trying to relive that whole experience. So I'm looking forward to that as well. I'm looking forward to uh, having a great show with you today, and I want to thank also the Land of Israel Network for hosting our show and the great folks that are on this network. Really proud to be here. Uh, and I want to wish everybody a happy Pesach. Today's show is something special. In the last few weeks, I've played for you some talks that I've given at, uh, at J Street and a talk that I gave to the Satmar Zionists. Today is a talk that I give to Gentiles, to Goyim, uh, to my friends, the Christadelphians. The Christadelphians are, are kind of an interesting and different brand of, uh, of, of Christian. Uh, they don't exactly even identify themselves as such, as they identify themselves as something different. But in any case, they are not Jews. They believe in the quote-unquote New Testament and all that. And I get, got a chance to give a talk to them. So you uh, have an opportunity to hear kind of a yet another different gear that I try to speak to a different kind of uh, people. Um... Who, who, who are part of the story, who love Israel, who are, who are passionate about Israel, and yet come from a completely different you know, mental space than either the J Street liberal kids or the uh, Satmar Zionist, uh, ultra-Orthodox, Brooklyn-based lovers of Israel um, uh, who are coming out of the anti-Israel tradition. Uh, and here are pro-Israel Gentiles who are coming out of a kind of unusual uh, Christian tradition. Uh, and uh, it's fun to talk to them as well, but you have to you have to treat it differently as well. So here is my talk. It's not so short. It's like an hour and a half. Enjoy uh, for this Pesach 2019 5777. Uh, my talk, Yishai's talk with the Christadelphians. Hi everybody. Hi. Shalom. Shalom. All right. My name is Yishai. I am officially the international spokesman for the Jewish community of Hebron. Okay, I work for Hebron, that means I work for the fathers and the mothers. For fathers and mothers who are buried in Hebron. How many of you could say that, that like, Abraham is your boss, okay? <laughs> Abraham's my boss, I'm his PR agent, I'm his consigliere, okay? I, I'm out there trying to make sure that people come and visit Hebron, and also there's a lot of people who want to uproot Hebron. Why would anybody want to uproot Hebron? Jewish Hebron, that is. Why would anybody want to uproot Jewish Hebron? It's a play on words, but it's true. They want to uproot it because it's the root. Okay, it's the root of Jewish presence in the land of Israel. Uh, first purchase of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Where's that? 
the tomb of the fathers and mothers in Hebron, right? It's in the booklet, folks, right? You, you remember the uh, purchase that Abraham made uh, to bury his beloved wife, Sarah? That's how Hebron starts. That's the first purchase of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. It's also where the first family of Israel is buried, right? Who's buried there? Who's buried in Hebron? Help me. Good. Yes, Abraham and Sarah, good. No, let's go sequentially. Abraham and Sarah. Isaac and? Rebecca. Thank you. And the next? Right, Jacob and Leah. In fact, it's actually Leah. She's buried there first because Jacob is dying. Where is he dying? you got to help me with the Bible, folks. I get to forget sometimes, right? That's right. I need some Christadelphians to come and help me out. So, so uh, where is where's, uh, Jacob dying? He's dying in Egypt. And he says to his sons, don't bury me here. I want to be buried in Hebron at the tomb that Abraham bought from, his, uh, from the Hittites for such and such in this place opposite the mountain of Mamre, which is today Jabal Nimrah. It's still there in the land of Canaan, in Kirat Arba. He says everything and he retells the tale. Why does he retell the tale? Because we are commanded to retell the tale. In fact, we're about to have Passover. Passover, one of the main commandments of Passover, you guys think of Passover, there's offerings, there's sacrifices, there's the temple service, there's don't eat bread, right? There's all that stuff you know about that, right? But what is one of the most essential aspects of Passover is retell the tale. That day, retell it over to your children. In fact, this evening, my beloved daughter Leah is with us, okay? She's 11, going on, going on 25, and she's right here. And, uh, and uh, she's, she's with me, and it's fun to have her. And it's, this is part of the, of the mission that we have to retell the tale. Now, the, the, there's another very important point today, which is we're living in a time of great information. This thing holds in it basically all the information of the world, right? I can access any amount of information. So we live in a time of great information, right? But we also live in a time of disinformation. Misinformation is good. It's disinformation that we're out there facing, okay? For example, that the Jewish people are occupying somebody else's land, that we're land thieves, that this is an abusive country, etc. This is stuff that you're facing all the time. Who here consumes CNN? Okay, who here is going to, nobody raise their hand, uh, who, here, who here consumes, I don't know, the New York Times? Doesn't look like a real New York Times group here, but, uh, but whatever, Newsweek, Time, LA Times, whatever it is, it's out there, and you're going to get mis- and disinformation. The misinformation is just ignorance. Disinformation is an effort to sway you out of this thing. And, and how many of you signed up for the Promised Land Youth Conference with, with Jonathan here, and some neighbor of yours said, don't do it? Yes? Yeah. Oh, why is that? Why don't do it? Because it's dangerous. It's dangerous out there. You're going to go to a crazy place. So you heard that, right? Yes or no? Yes. Somebody said it for you, no? Yeah. No, nobody. Okay, this guy. That's what living in Alaska will do. Where, where is it that you're from that nobody... Uh... Uh, All right, Okay. <laughs> Really? I guess it's just that bad in England that anywhere else it's just not. <laughs> anyway, just joking. But in any case, uh, in any case, that is, that is the time that we're living in. We're li living in a time of great information, also disinformation. 
Folks, I want to explain something to you. You guys, one of the things that I love about this group, and really the truth of the matter is, is that coming out to speak to you tonight is not so simple because it's one of the busiest and most ten tense times of the Jewish calendar this week before Passover. You may not know this, but, but something happens. The moon aligns with Venus, and Jewish women get absolutely nuts during this period. And, and, and you become, and every Jewish man knows this, your wife goes into some kind of ecstatic crazy mode, and you just have become a servant of your wife, and you clean the house, because God said that there should not be a breadcrumb in your house, and so therefore we're turning the whole house upside down, and it, you think it's a joke, but it's not a joke, and nice things like, for example, like a baby chair in the back of your car, a kid's chair, which is just this innocent object, becomes a nightmare. You're like, oh my God, this thing is encrusted with all kinds of stuff, and I've got to take it out and vacuum it and deal with it, and it's like a nightmare. Now, you can't understand, if you don't understand the seriousness, seriousness with which Jewish people take this stuff, observant Jewish people, well, they do. There's, there's room up here if you want, also. Uh, so, so we take it very seriously, and, and we basically go nuts. So the reason I'm telling you this is because why did I accede to Jonathan's request to come and speak with you today? Why is that? And that is because I appreciate and respect how serious of a group this is. I appreciate and respect how much uh, a seriousness you put into this. In fact, I even asked Jonathan, I said, Jonathan, please don't forget to give me the updated version of this booklet. And I don't, I'm not joking about this. I remember I spoke to here at this group, what, two years ago? Four. Four, even more than that. And I was like, this booklet was so incredible to me. First thing, it, it gives me an insight into my own stuff. It also gives me in, into, in, into uh, traditions that are not mine. But this is such a deep book about the places in the land of Israel. I love it. I wish, and I told them four years ago, and I say it now again, I wish that Israeli kids would have a booklet like this, okay? And really learn about, about the biblical heritage. So for that reason, uh, you know, I, I, I'm here to, to honor your intellectual depth. Uh, but let's really understand that the Bible is very much alive in this room, right? But I'm going to say something harsh, but true. The Bible's also dead. What do I mean by that? For me, it's like alive. What do I mean alive? It's my life. My life is the Bible. I'm living the Bible. When I come out of my house, where I live, in, in next, right next to Bethlehem, just like the Bible describes, Bethlehem is also Ephrata. That's its other name. I, I am, uh, my exit out of my house is to the right Bethlehem, to the left uh, 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 Hebron, to the right Jerusalem, to the left Beersheba. These are the names of the Bible, right? This is the very Bible. And so if you went to Harvard 200 years ago, everybody knew the Bible, right? And when you know the Bible, you also know who the, who's the hero of the Bible. Who's the hero of the Bible? Israel. Israel's the hero of the Bible, right? Why, did you have a different thought there? Uh, <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> no problem. That's the way I see it. And even, and even if you have a more, let's say, a more updated read, uh, and still Israel is the hero of the Bible, okay? Israel, and certainly the Bible that we live with, Israel is the hero of the Bible. And if you were in Harvard 200 years ago, you read the Bible, you even read it in Hebrew. You were really serious about the Bible, and you knew who the hero of God's word was, right? Today, go to Harvard, ask them about the Bible. They haven't read it in Hebrew, they haven't read it in Latin and Greek, and they haven't read it in English, and they don't know it. They don't know it. You can ask, and here's my little trick. I like to ask people, who was Isaac's wife? Book of Genesis, basics, right? Basics, who was Isaac's wife? But you'll see, ask people, they won't know. They won't know the very basics of the Bible. So if you don't know the basics of the Bible, 
Well, then this country that has been reborn, and the Hebrew language has come back up, and it's now you know, yearning to follow the ways of the Bible, and it's coming back to its ancestral homeland, like Hebron. If you didn't read the Bible and you didn't know it, then th those things may very well not be so heroic. Maybe these people are not those people. The people of what? It's just this newfangled people that came out of Europe and took over a, a piece of land in the Middle East. They're white colonialist foreigners. Okay, I can weave a different narrative if I don't know the other narrative. Narratives are important. And that's why Jacob, when he's dying in Egypt, says to, to his kids, he doesn't say, go bury me there. He tells them the whole tale again. You've got to understand why I'm telling you to bury me there. Why it's important to us. What's the original history of it? And that history matters. And if you don't know any of that, suddenly somebody says something totally different to you. I was recently with a group of, of J Street kids. Was it J Street? Yeah, it was a group of J Street kids. And I said to them, I say Hebron, you say? What word association? I said Hebron, they say occupation. That's what they had in their head. I'm like... Well, can you tell me about an important Jewish site in Hebron? Out of 60 kids, one kid knew that the tomb of the forefathers and mothers are there. Okay, so if I don't have the history in my head, if I don't know why this place is important, then the word Hebron is, is a Palestinian city and that we, we stole it. Okay? So narrative is important. Narrative is what gives us uh, 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 um, rationale to fight for it. That's what this book is all about. This book that, that, uh, uh, that Jonathan, you prepared it, right? That this book is all about, which is give us a narrative, give us a, a grip on the stories. Okay. So I get a chance in my life uh, to, do, to be involved. When I started my activism uh, in America, I was really involved in Aliyah. What does Aliyah mean? Right. Coming back, coming home, return, ascent is the real meaning of the word going up. Okay, when we are even called up to the Torah, it's called an Aliyah. You know, we read the Torah. Okay. So I was involved in Aliyah. Then when I came to the land of Israel, I started being involved in the rights of the Jewish people in the areas known as Judea and Samaria, the so-called West Bank. Okay? And I, I like to think that there are basically seven holy cities, seven biblical cities. And there's different ways of counting it. This is my count, okay? I like to think of the land of Israel. If, you, let's say, you're flying from America to the land of Israel, I like to see a menorah. Of seven, a candelabra of seven. Okay, there's seven holy cities. Starting in the middle, what's the middle candelabra? Help me out. That's right. Jerusalem. Okay, Jerusalem is the heart of it all. That's our central city. That's where all our yearnings have always gone to. That's the center of that candelabra. What's to the south, to the right of the of Jerusalem, a holy city, right, just a, a little bit south of Jerusalem, Bethlehem. That's right, Bethlehem. And my my the sister city of Bethlehem is Ephrat. And that's, why is that important, okay? So, uh, uh, Rachel was buried there, David was born there, and for other <laughs> traditions, other people are born there, right? So Bethlehem's an important city, an important city really to all, and it's, the word is Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Later we're going to read that, that Boaz, uh, the, is, is that the way you say it, Boaz? Yeah. Okay, he's, he's, uh, he's dealing with the, the, the uh, wheat, first the um, barley, then the wheat, Okay, so it's the house of bread, it's, it's, it's where that bread comes from. Today that area grows more grapes, as in the area of Judea. In any case, what matches uh, Bethlehem or Bethlehem to the north of Jerusalem? Jerusalem is in the middle, to the south is Bethlehem, to the north is? Shana. What's that? Shana. 
Before it, come back south a little bit. Bethel. That's right, Bethel or Bethel. Bethel, why is that place important? Help me. Huh? What? Jacob's dream. Right, exactly, Jacob's dream of the ladder. Uh, and, uh, and that's where basically, that's, that's his place to connect. He, he, go, he leaves to Haran, to southern Turkey, from Bethel, and he's going to come back to Bethel. That's where he's going to get the name Israel. Okay. Later on, Jeroboam is going to set up an uh, uh, altar there, and is going to create it as one of the uh, temple capitals of the alternative uh, uh, kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. Fine. Let's go to the south of the back south. Back south of Bethlehem is... Hebron, that's right. Hebron, capital of Judea in the ancient times, really was always an important place. Not capital of the whole area of Judea, but of Judah. Excuse me, I misspoke. Not of Judea, but of Judah. The tribe of Judah, the capital was Hebron. King David was crowned in Hebron. In fact, a miracle happened in Hebron. All the Jewish people came, all the leaders of the 12 tribes, and crowned King David. Why is that a miracle? That's right, because the Jewish people agree on one thing, that is a miracle, okay? So they crown King David there, and the forefathers and mothers are buried there. Caleb comes there. Remember Caleb? Anybody here named Caleb? Okay. Got any Caleb's right here? He's one of my favorite biblical characters. An incredible biblical character. Comes out of the slavery of Egypt, goes into the land of Israel, and he's one of the two spies that's like, we can do this. We can do this. I'm ready to go. I'm ready for redemption now. But the other people still had slave mentality, and they couldn't go in, and basically God had to take him to the desert for 40 years to get rid of that generation. Caleb and Joshua lead the nation in a second time. Awesome. Okay, what matches Hebron? On the northern end, we had, we had Jerusalem. We took, let's, let's, hey, can we use this thing? What is this? No, this is, totally, <laughs> this is a total fraud. Okay. Uh, Over there. All right. Oh, good. Okay, great. All right. <laughs> Okay, nice. Right, we got the whole story right here, right? Perfect. Okay, so uh, so we have here we had uh, Jerusalem. Okay, and here we had we said we said uh, we said Bethlehem. Excuse me, uh, Beit Lechem we'll call it. And here it's Beit El. Okay, and here we said we have Hebron. What matches Hebron here? Shiloh. Okay, so 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 this is my disagreement with my with my colleagues. I developed the system. Okay? <laughs> I came up with this idea. Right. So I shared it. So Shiloh, Shiloh, is a very important site and a very beautiful site to visit today. But in terms of the Bible, it's not really mentioned in the five books of Moses, which you'll see will get me in trouble later. But it's not really mentioned in the five books of Moses. Moreover, the tabernacle stood in a few different places. Shiloh was an important one, the most important one. And it's mentioned, of course, in the book of uh, Samuel 1, very importantly. But... Still, though, to me, it's not on the same level. There are many other cities that are mentioned, but it's not on the same level. Here, there's another city. What's that? That matches, think about it, matches Hebron. Ma matches the weight of Hebron. Shechem. Shechem. Okay, Shechem, Shechem. And how does the news media call this place? Nablus. What is Nablus? Nablus, Nablus. What is that? It's a nebulous term. Nebulous term, very good. Jonathan's sharp tonight. All right. What, is, uh, what does Nablus mean? New city. Right. It means Neapolis, which means Neopolis. Neo, new, polis, city, new city. It's a, it's a Roman term. So therefore, you know, sometimes there's this uh, newspaper here in Israel called the Times of Israel. So they call, they call Shechem, Shechem, they call it Nablus. So I'm like, why don't you just call Jerusalem Aeola Capitolina? Okay? What is, that, what is that business? This city is not called Nablus. <laughs> silly, silly times of Israel. It's called 
It's called it's called Shechem or Shechem. Okay, what's important about Shechem? What's that? Abraham came to it. Jacob first came to it when he came back. Very good. What? But what else? Come on. But what else? What's that? That's right. The the twin mountains. Uh, the blessings and the curses. Good. Patriarchs are buried there. Patriarchs. Sons of Joseph is buried there. Joseph. What is this? What is this? Jo jo Joseph is buried here. Okay. Okay. Joseph is buried here. All right. Very important. Joseph's tomb is in the heart of Shechem, right between these twin mountains. Okay. Right here in the middle is 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 the tomb of Joseph. Down at the bottom. That's where the 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 Ark of the Covenant stood when the people were arraigned on the two mountains to get the blessings and the curses. Har Eval and Har Grizim. Mount Mount Eval and Gerizim. Am I, am I saying that right? Fine. Okay, fine. So very important city, uh, very important city, very historical city. This is where the Jewish people accepted the Torah when they came into the land of Israel. Uh, when a new generation came in, those that weren't at the Sinai, uh, at, at the revelation at Sinai. This is where the Jewish people re-accepted the Torah. Very important city. And it matches in its way to Hebron. Okay, final city here. Help me out. Help me out. Help me out. That's right. Okay. Uh, we're going to write BS here, but take that as, uh, you know, think holy thoughts. Okay, so, so Beersheba. Now, here's where I'm going to get a little bit in trouble. Here's where I'm going to get. So, Beersheba is really one of the first cities that Abraham comes to. He teaches Torah there. He plants the tamarix tree, right? And, he's, and he is, he is he's, he's sending out, he, he puts out his famous tent there. And, and this is really the capital of the, of the Sinai, the Negev, the whole desert region. It's really the capital city of that whole southern uh, plateau, which is really connected also to Africa and, and, and to Saudi Arabia. And it's all that southern part. The, the land of Israel is so, so strange because on the one hand, you have this region, let's say, let's say from over here on, really connects to the Sinai which connects to Africa and connects to Saudi Arabia over here. Okay, so that's like one southern region. This region up here is already really the Golan Heights and Acre. Where do they connect to? They connect to the Lebanon, then to Syria, then to Assyria, to Iraq. Okay, so it's like part of that ancient world. Then you have here Haifa and, 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 uh, and let's say, um, uh, you know, the whole Tel Aviv region and Ashkelon. These regions, they really connect to the Mediterranean basin. Okay, that's, that means Italy, that means Greece, that means, you know, Spain, that means North Africa, you know? So, like, was that a funny face? That kind of, look at that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, to me, the, the land of Israel is really sitting at a crossroads of, like, all of ancient civilizations, if it's to Assyria, to, 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 the, to the desert, maybe to here to, to, per, to Iraq and Persia, to the, to the Twin Rivers here, and then all the way to North Africa, and then to Europe. It's really sitting in the heart. That's why America is very interesting, because America is a kind of, it's not part of this equation. It's part of something else. That's a very interesting thing. We'll get to that in a second. In any case, what is the, I don't remember how we got to that, but what is this last city? What is this last city? Okay, and here I'm going to get to... Uh, uh, really what I want to really talk about for a few minutes today, and then I want to get to your questions. I think that this city, this city is Tzfat, Tveria. Tzfat, okay? Have you been to Tzfat? 
Have you heard it's fun? Safed? Safed? Yes. Safed? Safed? Okay. Now this city is a very ancient city. Uh, it's not actually mentioned in the five books of Moses. That's why I get in trouble. But it is mentioned uh, in, uh, in, in, in various places. In, uh, and you could consult the book. Is it in the book? I don't think it is. Okay, let's consider it, okay? For, booking for the next time. For four years from now, right? So, so, and I'll tell you what about Safed. Now, according to the Jewish Medrash, what's Medrash? Do you know what that is? Jewish lore, additional info, additional info. You know what? Where's, the, where's my thing? We're gonna, I'm going to answer a, a certain question that you have here in your heads, which is, how do I know that Jewish, how do I, what should I think of Jewish additional info about the Bible? We'll get to that in a second. Anyway, there's, there's some additional info that says that really Jacob spent time in Sfat. Uh, that's where he learned the original amount of Torah that he had from Shem. How do we call that? How do we call that in English? Shem. 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 Okay. He's right. So he is really. If you think about it, we're Semites. Really, we are coming from the Shem tradition. Uh, Abraham is really coming from a place. He's not totally bereft of something. He's coming from a, from a godly tradition that came from Adam to Noah to Shem to Abraham. Okay. Shem is also identified as Malkitzedek. Okay, Malkitzedek, the, the king of Salem, Jerusalem, is known, is known as Shem. Any case, but here's what's really important. In the year, around the year 1540, came a very special man from, he was born in Jerusalem. He moved, when he was a kid, moved down to Egypt and then moved back to the land of Israel. And his name was the Ari, the Arizal. He was a mystic, a great mystic in the Jewish tradition. And this mystic, I'm not going to, with this crowd, I'm not going to get into all the, the mystical stuff that, that happened, but the bottom line is that he sent out a ping from the town of Tzvat. Ping, 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 ping. That ping included basically two major thrusts. One, start studying the Kabbalah. That is the mystical tradition of the Bible. And two, land of Israel. It's time to come back home. And we've been coming back home for the last 500 years, approximately. Okay? That's the real truth. We've been coming home for the last 500 years in various ways. The major wave started already in the 1700s, and we started coming back home. And in the late 1800s, there was a lot of anti-Semitism, so Jews started coming to the land of Israel. By that time, there was more and more communities all over the place. And by 1920, 1917, the world, Balfour, recognizes the Jewish claim to the land of Israel and the idea of establishing a presence in the land of Israel. And in 1922, the League of Nations, after the, the disbandment of the, the, the taking apart of the Ottoman Empire, recognized that the Jewish people should have their ancestral land as, as theirs. This is called self-determination. Okay? And that we're an ethnic group and we have a national liberation movement called Zionism. And we have a yearning to come back to this land of Israel. And of course, what's the thing about Balfour? What's with Balfour? Why is he so into Israel? Is he into startup nation? What is he? What is he so into? Hello, help me out. What's with Balfour? You're he's you're a Brit, so come on. <laughs> he was deeply passionate about his Bible. Why is that? His mother would teach it to him. He, they practically went through the whole Bible once a year. He, when the war was around, he knew the places of the land of Israel. Remember, the Anzacs came in from, from, from uh, remember, the, you know, they're, they're coming from, uh, from Beersheba. And really, the, 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 
it's an interesting story, really. But but they are they are in the end the liberators of the land of the land of Israel. They're gonna go up to Jaffa. They're gonna go up to Acre. They're gonna go up to, to Jerusalem. They're gonna kick out the Turks, and they they liberate the land of Israel. And ostensibly at that time for the help, helping re, give rebirth to the Jewish people, the Bible was a key leg to all that. Okay, and later on when the Bible was pushed aside for other interests. Uh, people started uh, forgetting about their promise to the land of Israel, so we had to kick them out. Okay, that's what happened with the British. Sadly, they had a great moment in time. They still get credit for that, but they also kind of forgot about their great promise to rebuild the Jewish people's homeland. I guess God wanted us to, to, to push them out and, and to kind of do it with our own, with, his, with the strength that he has given us, but with our own hands. In any case, we are in the process right now of, of returning to the land of Israel. Friends, when I was born... Uh, beautiful 42 years ago, uh, there were 3 million Jews living in the land of Israel. Today there are 6.5 million. Okay, we have over, over, then over doubled uh, uh, our population here in the land of Israel in those years. Moreover, what has returned to the land of Israel? The Hebrew language was reborn. It was a sleeping language, a dead language. It's been reborn. Uh, what else was reborn? Agriculture. Uh, um, Military strength. In the last few years, an economy that's robust and flourishing. Okay? You guys come here and see like a normal Western-type country. That wasn't always like that. It was, a, it was a socialist country, a much poorer country, etc. And it's really been reborn in our time. So the language, the, the land. Now, the, the, the Talmud says that how do you know we're living in a time of redemption? When the, fruit, when the land of Israel will give of its fruit. Okay? When it's actually going to give of its, when it's going to be green. That's when you know you're living in a time of redemption. In our mind, we're living in a great time of redemption. Now, here we go. We're going to get just to the little bit of a conflict, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. 1948, we, 1948, we declared independence. Did we win or lose the 1948 War of Independence? You won by a long shot. We won, right? We won, right? How do we know? Because it's called the War of Independence. We won that one, right? Uh, but... But in fact, you say we won by a long shot, but I say to you, not exactly. Because while we won, we also lost the ancestral homeland. Okay, we lost parts of the ancestral homeland. We lost. Beersheba we, we held. But Hebron was on the wrong side. Jordan took it over. Jordan was British-led, British-trained, British-armed. And, and they, they pushed in when we declared independence, and we lost Hebron. What about Beit Lechem? Lost Beit Lechem. What about Jerusalem? East Jerusalem, the Western Wall, the Old City, <clears throat> the Mount of Olives, all taken from us. What about Beit El? Taken from us. Shechem, taken from us. Okay? So the heartland, okay? The heartland was, was, uh, was uh, controlled by Jordan. And that happened for 19 years. For 19 years, they occupied our ancestral homeland. Okay? And so, in 1967, okay, in 1967, a, a miraculous war called the Six-Day War, and that's part of it also. When you're going biblical, you also have biblical wars, right? The Bible has wars in it, and God is with you or God is not with you. And God was with us in the Six-Day War. And we regained our ancestral homeland. We also gained the Sinai Peninsula and the... I can't even figure this out anymore. And the and the uh, the Golan Heights, okay, and also what else? And of course, regain Judea and Samaria, okay, Samaria, the north part of here's Jerusalem, so that's Samaria, and this is Judea, 
Judah, excuse me, Judah. Okay? So we regained those places, and we, and we, what a miracle. But guess what? Not everybody was ready to digest that miracle. Here's an interesting factoid. Do you know that the majority of people who win the lottery lose the amount that they gained within six months? Do you know that? Why is that, friends? Yikes. Why is that? Why is that? Right, and because their, their vessel is not ready to really uh, uh, matriculate it get, it, get it into the system. They're not ready. For example, you take a very dry old sponge. You pour water it. What happens? Water runs right off. You know, you got to get it wet. You got to let it absorb, okay? Not everybody was ready to absorb the miracle. Miracles aren't always easy to absorb, you know? Sometimes you see God, you turn away, you know? You don't always look God in the face. God says, you can't look at me in the face. You look at me and you die. Okay, a person cannot look at me face to face. Sometimes God comes to you face to face. It's a scary moment. Okay? And also, maybe you're not ready for that identity. Maybe you just want an identity as a cool Tel Aviv Jew, and you're not ready to be a Judean again, you know? You want to drink your latte uh, here in Tel Aviv, okay? And you're part of Europe, and you're part of your high-tech guy, okay? And you're not ready to be a camel-driving scribe, you know, uh, in the desert. That's not your thing, okay? So, so, so it's an identity problem as well. And Israelis weren't exactly ready to take upon themselves the identity of being a Judean again, you know? They weren't ready to face God eyeball to eyeball. Like the Temple Mount. Like the Temple Mount. Is it easy to take the Temple Mount? If I, if I hold on to the Temple Mount and I take off the, the mosque that's there and I'm supposed to build a temple, that's heavy. Temple? That means, I'm, I, didn't, I thought again, I thought I was a high-tech guy. Now I'm a temple guy? I'm not ready for that. Okay, I'm not ready for that. Um, and so that, and for other reasons, one of which is, of course, fear. Fear. Fear is a big factor in life in general. We don't always realize it, but fear navigates us a lot of times. We don't see it, but sometimes we turn away from all kinds of fears. That's just part of, part of human psyche. Your neighbors that told you not to come here are both fearful and jealous and therefore angry, okay? And, 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 and therefore, and of course, don't want to blame themselves. As a great Jewish psychologist, Rabbi Tversky, said that mankind needs exactly three things. Food, shelter, and somebody else to blame other than themselves, okay? <laughs> that is the, 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 the makeup of humanity, okay? And so, and so you're a kook, and you're crazy for coming to Israel. Not me, because I'm playing it safe, which is the right thing to do. But really, they're jealous they're because they want to. And you've come here, and you can connect to, to Israel and God and all that. Okay, so, so because of fear, Jewish people did not immediately annex and make sovereignty over the areas of Judea and Samaria. Oh, there's more room. Okay, so, so, so then the settlers were born. Jews that are... Yeah, let me have that. that other, oh, nice. All right, the settlers. Can I erase this holy stuff or should I leave it forever now? Okay. Yeah, sell it as modern art. Yeah, did you see it? it was, yeah, modern art. Sell that for million It was beautiful. It was beautiful. <laughs> it's so informative. Um, uh, Easy to follow. So, so, so the settlers... Settlers were born. We don't actually call them settlers in Hebrew. We call them mitnachlim or mityashvim, which means 
Mitnachlim comes from the word inheritance. So inheritors, taking their inheritance, or this, is, this would be translated as settlers, but it should be, well, it means more like people who settle, but like, like from the word settle down, you know, like, like settling a place. It doesn't mean like, like the modern interpretation of like stealing somebody else's land. It means to settle, you know. Like I tell my daughter, settle down a lot, okay? So, 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 so that's us. We're the folks that moved into Judea and Samaria and to Gaza and to Sinai because we believe that this is our land and it's time to hold on to it. How many settlers are there today? Well, there's about, well, it's hard to say, but, well, there's about, there's about 450,000 in Judea and Samaria and about another 300,000 in, East, in eastern Jerusalem. And therefore, and therefore there's about 750,000 quote-unquote settlers, although the ones in eastern Jerusalem are not all called settlers, but from the international, supposedly from the international community, that's how they're seen. And that means that more than one in ten Israelis lives out in, in these parts. And ironically, they're the holiest parts, the most historic parts. And it's exactly in these parts that a Palestinian state wants to arise. So to me, a Palestinian state is, look, I'm not pro-Palestine. I'm not anti-Arab at all. I believe that Arabs should have rights and decencies and opportunities, those who are loyal to the state of Israel. You could be loyal and still be, you could have your identity, Muslim, Arab, or Palestinian, you could have your identity, but you have to accept that in this small landmass, which is about, if you would like to equate how much the landmass of Israel is within the Arab world, it's like a matchbox on a football field. Okay? Now they're telling us, cut the matchbox in half and put the folks that have been taught jihadism for the last 30 years, really for the last 100 years, on the part of the matchbox, which is the highland. So they have the football field, cut the matchbox, put the, the Palestinian state exactly where your ancestral homeland was, where the important cities were, and the high ground, put a Palestine there, and this is after that it's been proven that when they get a piece of land, they shoot at you incessantly. So this is the reality that we face today, and people like myself are also involved in teaching the Bible and bringing people closer in tourism, but also a political fight. A political fight uh, that also involves, uh, strangely enough, a different country, which is the United States of America, a country that has a political impact around the world, since it is a superpower or a type of, a type of modern way of saying empire. Not an empire of colonialism, but an empire of, of, of power. And so influence has to run there, there as well. And so you, you, may not know it, you may not know it, but you are actually uh, one way or another in that fight. One way or another are actually in that fight. Because since America is a country of public... Are most people here from America? Or is there some other countries? We have England. Anybody else? Canada. Canada. Okay. Australia. Australia. I was just there. Scotland. Scotland. Okay. So is that part of the UK? <laughs> I get confused. I get confused. I get confused. Uh, where in Scotland? Near Glasgow. Oh, near Glasgow. Okay, great. I, I actually haven't been, but I, I would love to visit one day. Uh, I don't have any much reason to go out there so much. You know, there's not a lot of Jewish people, not a lot of pro-Israel support there. Although there's some. There's always some. Oh, there's always some. There's some everywhere. There's always a, there's always a Twitter handle <laughs> popping up 
of like the Irish for Israel and, and Scots for Israel. There's always no, it's actually very moving. There are people all over the world, in every place, that, and, in, and in Arab countries as well, that pop up and they're like, no, we stand with Israel. We see what's going on. And it's actually very, to me, it's very moving. Uh, in any case, that's about it. That's where I am today. I find myself on the crossroads of, of trying to get people excited about, sure, the story of the Bible and the story of God, God's great dream that's coming to fruition in our time. Uh, but at the same time, the fight to hold on to our ancestral homeland. And, and it really depends how you paint it. In this room, which I think we have, do we have God consciousness here? Is God in our lives? Are we, is that a thing? Yes? Don't be embarrassed. It's good to say it. That's right. It's good to say it. It's good to know it, you know? Uh, uh, in my mind, and certainly in the room of God consciousness, you know, one time I was in Toronto, and in the morning I was speaking in a synagogue, and then evening in a church. So I said, okay, in the synagogue, I said, okay, today I'm going to talk, pol this morning I'm going to talk politics. When I get to church, I'm going to talk Torah, okay? I'll talk, I'll talk God in the church, and here I'll talk politics. Okay, it was funnier for Jewish audiences. Anyway, so, so in any case, uh, um, uh, the, in this audience, certainly it's easy to say that the enemies of Israel also really want to drown out the light of God. That's what they want to do. They don't want to see this thing rising. They don't want to see it rising. Certainly it makes them feel a little bit jealous and a little bit second, you know, and they, they get... And that's, remember, Cain and Abel, the word Cain, Cain, comes from the word Kina'ah, which is jealousy. Like, the main thing about Cain and Abel, that basic, basic story, is about a brother killing a brother because of jealousy. That's like one of the foundational themes of the Bible. Uh, and sometimes there are enemies of God who think that they have a better version of, of God, uh, of understanding of God. That is called supersessionism. That is called, uh, what do we call it? Uh, replacement, replacement theology, replacement doctrine. And today, there is replacement narrative. Okay, there used to be just replacement theology. We're the real chosen people of God. The Jews are forgotten. The Jews are this and that. The, the Torah is a lie, all that. There's different versions of supersessionism, Muslim supersessionism, Christian supersessionism. And, and today there's narrative supersessionism where Palestine, they're the David, Israel, big bad Goliath. We have stolen the land. They are, you know, they are the natives of the land. Instead of saying we're the ancient peoples of this land, we were kicked out. You guys are colonizers. We're the we're, we're right. We have every right to live here. No, we're foreigners. There's an alternative narrative. You could read it in the New York Times. That that is an alter, That is a type of new supersessionism that's out there. So I'm on the crossroads of, of dealing with these things, and it's a lot of fun because we're also living with all that in great times. Yes, there are many challengers. Yes, there are many enemies. Yes, Israel has faced wars and wars and wars. There's terrorism, etc. But we also see the great light that is, that is coming out. We see the great light, and with more and more time, we see that the enemies are fading, that more and more global governments are accepting. India used to be a quasi-enemy of Israel. Not an enemy, but like not a friend. It's like a different world. Like this giant, world's biggest democracy, India, like a billion people, is like... Like in love with Israel. That's like totally different. East, East European countries, Hungary, Poland, Ukraine. These are countries that were like some of the prime advocates of the Holocaust. Now they're like, ooh, Israel, cool. A Jewish state, neat. A good, good sovereign state pushing back on, on fundamentalist Islam. That's, we're like that too. All right? Uh, I don't know. What else? Arab countries are coming out. Please protect me from Iran. You know? Uh, Saudi Arabia is like, you know what? We're friends. It's cool. Sorry about the past. 
You know, uh, uh, you have, uh, in, in Egypt, you have uh, uh, um, Sisi, Al-Sisi. By the way, Sisi is, is ISIS backwards. Is that weird? Uh, so uh, he's, he's anti-terror, he's anti-Muslim Brotherhood, he's friendly with Israel, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we have a big changeover in, first of all, we have weird places that change over, like Austria. Today, this guy, Sebastian Kurtz, this young prime minister in Austria, very pro-Israel. Totally different kind of dude. And then we have a big changeover in American politics. Something very special is going on. And of course, there's a lot of anger and a lot of you know, challenges. But from our point of view, and I'm not talking about American domestic politics, from our point of view, the Trump administration has done great things. The recognition of Jerusalem, uh, 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 the, the stopping of payment towards terrorism through the Palestinian Authority, the leaving of the Human Rights Commission and of UNESCO, um, the Iran deal, breaking that and stopping that from, from going forward, which, they, you know, this was the prime sponsors of, of, of terror and nuclear terror against Israel, and other things, and the recognition of the Golan Heights, of course. So, great things have happened in the United States as well, from our point of view. Uh, and so we're living, really, in so many ways, in amazing, miraculous times. So the war goes on, that's okay, because we have to be warriors out there, uh, but we're also living in a time of great, great blessings, and we should also appreciate it. So right after this talk, I'm going to take my daughter. Hopefully it'll still be open. The, the holiest place in Jerusalem is right down the block here. The Katsefet's ice cream place, right? <laughs> How do I know it's so holy? Because it's always filled with people and light is coming out of it, right? And it's this incredible like corner of, of goodness and, 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 and light. So I will be taking my daughter to enjoy some of those blessings. Uh, and we're living in amazing times. That's it. That's what I have to say to you. Yay. Okay. <laughs> Now, now it's time for your questions. That's actually wanted to get to that. I was like, I'll make a very short speech and we'll get to the questions. So, perfect. Okay, great. Go. Your issues. What do you want to know? Throw hardballs at me. Don't worry about it. Don't try to be nice. What's on your mind? You're here on a trip. Jonathan's brought you here. You're like thinking about a lot of stuff. You come also from a. There's a lot of cultural things that you're that you see and think about. Questions that you have about like. So ask, the, ask me the questions that are bothering you inside. Yes, sir. There's a lot of Jews in, in Europe that are being persecuted right now. Mm -hmm. like the, well, the anti-Semitism not persecuted, but anti-Semitism is But it's definitely not, it's not a Christian anti-Semitism right now. There's a, there's, a, there's a Muslim anti-Semitism, and there's the weird confluence of liberalism or ultra-liberalism or progressivism with Islamism and jihadism, which is the weirdest hybrid in the world. What is... What is what does a liberal left person have to do with a you know, very illiberal movement? It's, it's one of the great mysteries of this world. But the fact is, is it, is it, is it coexists fairly nicely. It, it's, it comes from a certain, probably a certain self-loathing, a certain self-identity, dismemberment of a, of a self-identity. And then these guys with the super-identity, they're coming in and they're playing to the role of we're, we're an abused minority and all that kind of stuff and that works for the people who want to help the downtrodden. It's a whole system, an intellectual uh, 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 hybrid today, which is, it's really a fascinating story in itself. And with that comes an anti-Semitism. Now, Europe has a top layer of anti-Semitism always, in places like England, in places like France, in places like Germany, certainly. It's a, it, there's a deep anti-Semitism that comes from a deep, thousand years of anti-Semitic education, it's ingrained in a deep way, and it lives in a certain kind of, uh, you know, now it's not in fashion to be overtly anti-Semitic, but still society kind of has a, 
doesn't really like the Jew. This is very different than, than, than America. It's a very different kind of atmosphere. And really, Americans can't even understand it. They, they, it's like a different mental world. Uh, I have a very good friend, by the way, who's a Catholic, an American Catholic, so much so that he's a, a Dominican monk. And he comes from a pro-Israel stance, really because he's coming from America. But when he goes into his Catholic world in Europe and stuff, he's always, it always hurts him how anti-Semitic you know, that system still is. In any case, Jews have faced certain persecutions. Oh, so there's this top layer of anti-Semitism. But then with Islamic immigration, that's like the, 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 the brute squad who that's actually going to fulfill that anti-Semitism. In the meantime, it just sat on top on a kind of elite level. But now somebody's actually going to do stuff. So then people kind of turn the other way, you know, the, the, in the French and different places. They're going to kind of, it's going to kind of like happen. And that's what's happening in places like Europe. Jews are leaving. There's a, there's a flight out of places like England and, and France. It's just not comfortable. I have personally spoken with people. England's not so bad yet. But in France, for sure, people are leaving because they're just not comfortable. It's just not a comfortable atmosphere. Okay? My question is, yeah. what, what, what does Israel do to help them? Either to leave the country or to settle here? Is there any assistance for them? Or they, uh... they have met, they're, 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 here in Israel... If you're a Jewish person, you have an automatic right to be a citizen of Israel. No seven-year wait, no anything. You have the law of return, which, by the way, is not uncommon in the world. Many ethnic states have a law of return. And you'd be surprised, like Portugal and Spain. If you can prove Spanish descent, you can get citizenship in Spain. Okay? So Israel, if you can prove you're Jewish, Israel says, boom, you can have citizenship. We'll also help you matriculate into society with all kinds of packages, all kinds of things that, that we can do. We keep our arms open. Here's the safe Jewish state. You're welcome. Now, French Jews sometimes cross the channel and go to, um, you know, England. And sometimes they go to uh, Miami. And sometimes they go to Montreal. Those are all good places. But we are trying to bring in as many as possible into the land of Israel. And if you go to places like Netanya, Ashkelon, Ashdod on the, on the coastal plain, and they love those kind of places, you will find French bistros, French-speaking people, French synagogues, and it's really something very special. Okay? Yes? Do you feel that um, the areas in Judea and Samaria are getting safer than they have in previous years? And do you think that uh, Netanyahu will deliver his election promise about recognizing these areas? Good. So you asked, I'm just repeating it for the sake of the recording, you asked whether uh, the areas of Judea and Samaria have become safer and uh, whether uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu will indeed, uh, we don't like the word annexation so much, we prefer the um, a word as, as escaped my mind, but the uh, application of sovereignty, application of Israeli law uh, in, in the so-called West Bank, Judea and Samaria. Okay, so here's the deal. One thing that I skipped mentioning is that my beloved country, Israel, in the middle 90s and in the early 2000s, until the middle 2000s, went on a 10-year awful, awful rampage of trying to create a Palestinian authority, an autonomous Palestinian entity within the heartland of Israel. Okay? Uh, people like myself have been against that are against that, fight against that. This is called land for peace. This is called the two-state solution and all that. We are, we, are, we are vehemently against it. We think that it's wrong on every level. 
I can argue it legally, militarily, biblically, whatever you want. I can argue how wrong and stupid it really is. It's so plain stupid. It's so plain stupid that Gentiles, oftentimes on an airplane, after talking to me for a few minutes, just say to me, and, and you'll, you'll pardon my, my Southern American accent, why do you people want to give your land away to your enemies? People ask me that all the time. Like, why would you do that? Because it's so plainly dumb. But, 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 but sadly, uh, you know, uh, smart Jews are outsmarting common sense and have come to this conclusion that it's somehow a good idea to empower a jihad uh, entity in our heartland uh, where all the history took place and give them the highland. Well, the big thing was 2005. 2005 was the Gaza evacuation. I was there. My wife was there, my dog was there, and we were, we were, we were kicked out of there along with the 8,500 Jews that, that lived there. And we were saying, don't do this. And the Arabs were saying to us, please don't do this. Don't do this to us. Don't allow the bad guys to take over our, our life. And we were saying, hey Israel, don't do this. The bad guys are going to take over this place and it's going to become a jihadist um, right hotbed or forward base against Israel in a year. And we were wrong, because it, it took place in six months. And it became what it is, which is a forward base of the jihad, Hamas took over. So, I'm getting to your answer to your question. And that is, what about Judea and Samaria, the so-called West Bank? The answer is that ever since that time, Israelis have come to the conclusion that so-called land for peace or two-state solution is a bad idea. It doesn't work. Land giveaway doesn't work. And so therefore, there has been a little bit more tendency to help give roots to those communities and help establish them and help them grow. The country has swung to the so-called right, towards nationalism, away from this kind of universalism, leftism, and, and land giveaway kind of thing, and, more, and le less of these kind of la-di-da dreams about a new Middle East, but a more realistic, realpolitik approach to what's happening in the Middle East. So, moving forward, yes, there is a little bit more n normalization of Jewish presence in these places. At the same time, the Palestinian Authority still exists, and places like where I work in Hebron, it's really an 80% Hamas-run town. And recently I spoke to important members of the American uh, government, and, and I said to them, hey, you know, if you remove the Jews from Hebron, that means the army's going to leave. And if the army leaves, that means that Hamas is just going to take over, and you're going to have a Gaza right in the heart of the mountains of, of Judea. Bad idea. So, and they're like, yeah, you're right, you know? So, yes, there is more, there is more presence, there is more growth, certainly with the Trump administration, especially if you compare it to the Obama administration, day and night, night and day, okay? And so really it's, it's very, very different. During the, Trump, during, the Netanyahu, uh, during the Obama administration, there was a fear that this other big power is going to try to strip us of our land. And we're going to have to go into a big war. Um, that didn't happen, partially to the, to the uh, fantastic work by Prime Minister Netanyahu. Now we're in a different period. We want to maximize this period. Um, in the meantime, we're always trying to settle, trying to build, trying to buy, and trying to forge decent relationships with Arabs who want a decent life with us. 
It's not so simple for them because they have been brainwashed horrifically to hate Jews. It's fed to them in the TV and day-to-day sermons, teachings, Facebook, etc. That's a problem uh, that we have not surmounted. But there's more of a sense that we're not going anywhere. The proclamation by Prime Minister Netanyahu was more of an affirmation of something that's already happening, which is that we're holding on to this land. And the, move, the lingo is we're talking about sovereignty. We have a whole sovereignty movement. And I'm involved right now in creating in Congress a new caucus called the Israel Heartland Caucus, which is going to bring together a lot of congressmen and women who already know this and believe this, but need the firepower to be able to push back not only against Europeans, jihadists, but also ultra-liberal Jews. Many times the Jewish congressman is one of the problems that we face. That is, that is the reality. Okay, So the, your, the answer to your question is yes, but it's still a work in progress. Nick, come on, where's the hard questions? Come on. Who's bothered by something? No, you already had this. Come on. No, you can ask me at home. Yes, sir. It's not really a hard question. I'll let you. Just, can you talk a little bit about Israel's relationship with Russia? Not my field exactly, although I am a Russian speaker also. Uh, there's no relationship with Russia. There's a relationship with Putin. Okay? <laughs> Putin is Russia. Okay? Uh, and uh, the, it's a complex relationship, and it has something to do with, uh, with Russia's stance in the world in general, their allies in the Arab world, uh, tra- traditional allies. At the same time, look, the Eastern Orthodox Church is a deeply anti-Semitic church. Okay? It has been for a long time. Uh, remember, it's really the church that kind of took over this land. That is Byzantium. So... The Jews are the thing that they want to get away from, you know. Um, um, but on the other hand, Putin is really no anti-Semite. And that's what we feel here a lot of times. He has a different attitude because of his history. His position and stance is just not anti-Israel, anti-Semitic reflexively. And so we've had a decent relationship with him. And a lot of military, at least understanding between us and, and, and communication... If you ask me, I'm saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, really the world is run by three men, and that is Trump, Putin, and Netanyahu. Okay, there's like a triumvirate. And, and like, it's, a fun, it's like a little bit of a joke, but there's some kind of truth in it, which these are three people that are working relatively in concert, and we are seeing a lot of things in the right direction. Um, look, the, the big bad guy here, and this is no secret, is Iran. Iran has uh, ambitions... Uh, to control this whole, this whole neighborhood. They have ambitions, especially on Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has not become a wonderful, loving, pro-Israel country. They didn't get Jonathan's book and started studying it and like, are just in love with the Bible. No, but they're afraid for their lives from Iran. They're looking to Israel to be the new power broker, the new regional umbrella to protect them. And so uh, um, even Putin understands that Iran needs to be uh, somewhat contained. Okay, that's as much as I could say about that issue. That's not in my general scope, but uh, what about him in Syria? We have a problem of a land bridge. You know, you, you know what's really there's, a, there's something in the mix that you kind of didn't mention. Do you know what the real weird thing is? 
the real thing in that mix, Russia, Iran, Syria, you missed one thing, which is Iraq. And what happened was is that Saddam Hussein was a really bad person, but he was a Sunni element against Iran, and they contained one another. You got rid of Saddam, basically Iran took over Iraq. And that area, it's huge, humongous land, is under their control. And a land bridge through Syria down to southern Lebanon. Okay? And so there are routes of smuggling rockets. Now, the Persians are very smart and sophisticated folks. And they, they're scientifically minded, etc. So they create stuff in, in Iran and then try to ship it overland in, through Syria, which has become their close friend. And, and, and their proxy, Hezbollah, southern Lebanon, and also fighting in the Syrian battle. So you basically have a land bridge. Israel keeps on shooting down all kinds of transference of these weapons. And so the intelligence has to be strong and, and the ability to, to accurately shoot these things and enter Syrian airspace and all that. And that has to be in concert with Russia as well. Okay? Now look, this is not, I'm, not, this is, I'm not sitting at these places, but that's, that's what I understand. All right? Let's go. Come on. I can see in your eyes that something's bugging you. Come on. Tell me about the things that are bugging you. Get, get to it. Get to the things that are bugging you inside when you're, when, you're, when you're walking around. Yes, ma'am. So when we were up in the Galilee, we had our, our tour guide, Yanni, who told us that a lot of the Arab neighborhoods, you can tell because they've got like those black water towers on top of them. I noticed when we were in the city of David, like that seems to be surrounded primarily by what I would assume to be an Arab neighborhood if that's how they Sure. If Jews move into that area, do they try to take that down, or is it like too much of an effort? They just take what down? The like the black water towers. Well, the black water towers are just water towers. They, 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 there's no, there's no. That's not an issue. You don't have to take them down or keep them up. It's just a way to get hot water into your house. That's right. not, that's not a thing. But I think what you're asking, and I want to repeat the question. Basically, I think what you're asking is, okay, there's predominantly Arab areas. Why push in and try to live? in these areas is not going to cause tension. Well, yeah. You know what I mean? It, it definitely causes tension. But why does it cause tension? Why should Jews have a tension living amongst Arabs? What, what's the problem there? This is something that bothers me a lot of times where we like kind of assume that it's cool for there to be these all-Arab neighborhoods and that if Jewish people are living there, that necessarily causes tension. Well, why is that? Well, that really is because Amongst the Arab world, there is an ideology today, not everybody at all, but a large segment of the Arab world has succumbed to an ideology called jihadism. Just like Nazism is in Germany, it's an ideology that feeds off the German you know, mentality, so too jihadism feeds into the Arab Muslim mentality. Not just Arab Muslim mentality, just Muslim mentality, but especially the Arab Muslim mentality. By the way, just a question, I just want to ask a quick question here. How many Arabs are there in the Middle East? Arabs. How many Arabs? They range from uh, 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 West Africa to the Persian Gulf. How many Arabs are there in the Middle East? A couple hundred million. What's that? A couple hundred million. Okay. Okay. Now, now this is to me a baseline question. Because, because if you don't kind of know that, and I want to tell you, majority of groups don't know. Sometimes like some smart out <laughs> kid knows, but like most of the people don't know. And I think it's a baseline question, because if you, if you kind of don't understand that, then you don't understand what Israel is. 
And the answer is there's 400 million Arabs. I'm not counting Persians. I'm not counting Turks. I'm not counting uh, black Africa, black Muslims. I'm not counting any of them. I'm just talking about Arab Muslims. It's about 400 million. And how many Jews are there in the Middle East? Six and a half million. So therefore, now we understand that Israel is an ethnic state living amongst an Arab world. We're here to defend our ethnic minority. That's what this country is about. When they tell you that it's Jewish and democratic, Jewish and democratic, Jewish and democratic, don't believe them. It's a mistake. It's really not about being Jewish and democratic. It's really about an ethnic state defending its ethnicity and helping its ethnic culture rise up. And it runs a system called democracy, but it's a secondary value. Now, the reason I'm, I, I went to this tangent is just to explain to you that we really live amongst their world. And what, why do we have to defend ourselves from them? Because jihadism is an intolerant ideology which religiously is bothered by the idea that the Jewish people are going to come back and establish a sovereign state. They don't mind Jews living amongst them as second-class citizens. But to have a shiny Jewish state in the middle of their Middle East where it was once Arab and Muslim lands, it's a problem. So, okay, but guess what? The majority of Arabs that live here today came here starting in the year 1850. Okay, the last 150 years they've really come here. Why? Because Israel has developed job opportunities. Okay, there's been work here. And so Arabs have, have conglomerated and they have settled in places, many of them, which are really the essential holy places. And so when we move back to the city of David, we try to move back to where David had his first capital. We try to reconnect to these places. We want the old city of Jerusalem to have access. Right now, Jewish access to the old city of Jerusalem is really from one side, from the west. But from the south, that's the city of David, but really still one. From the east is the Mount of Olives, but many Arab neighborhoods live there. Atur, Ras uh, uh, and to the north, also just Arab neighborhoods, uh, Sultan Suleiman, and all these Arab neighborhoods, and, and, and Isawiya here. So all these neighborhoods are uh, surround the old city of Jerusalem. Here's the old city of Jerusalem. Arabs are here, all, really all around, and we really have access only from one side. This is the Jaffa Gate, this is the Zion Gate, and, and this is the, uh, the Dung Gate. But basically the rest of these are kind of in Arab control. And so we want to live here so that you can be safe coming down here. We want to connect with our history here. And if it's going to cause friction, that's, we're not there to cause friction. We're there to create a, a good life for everybody. But we're there to hold on to our history, our justice, and we're not going to be pushed away. Now, it happens to be that many of the Arabs that live around here believe that there's never been a temple here, and that Jews should, and that Jews, uh, 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 um, should not pray when they're walking on the Temple Mount. You're going there tomorrow. Okay? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And certainly don't like Jewish presence returning to this land. So they're fighting us in all these places. And, when, and if we, when we have a certain weakness, and we let, for example, Jordan control, the Jordanian Waqf, the Muslim Trust, controls the Temple Mount. That's absurd. That's just absurd. And so uh, they see us creeping in, coming home, and it bothers them on a few different levels. Uh, but mostly religiously, okay? It doesn't bother them in the sense that they get to use the best hospitals in the Middle East, okay? And that their standard of living is one that the rest of the Arab world is jealous of, and that you could get an education here at the university or here at the university and, and become whatever you want. Uh, that part they appreciate, but they don't always like it that it's coming from this sovereign Jewish state. But here's the way to really sell it. Here's the way to really sell it. The way to sell it is we are a Semitic tribe, 
like you. We're your Arab, you're Arabs, we're your Jewish cousins, we're a kind of Arab as well, we're a tribe. We're not some kind of white Western implant, we are a Semitic people from this land, we were kicked out, we're back. We're Abrahamic like you, you are our cousins, we get you, you get us, and this is our tribal space. If you want to live amongst us, be loyal, respect our laws, like the Druze, and it's going to be cool. And if you're not cool, well, we're going to fight you, because we know how to fight as well, because we're a tough Middle Eastern people. Okay? And that's really the way to, <coughs> that's the way we understand it ourselves. Ironically, the so-called settlers are people who are more like Arabs, understand Arabs more, respect Arabs more, ironically. And, and, and kind of get ourselves that we're in a land conflict and a religious conflict, and that, and, that, and that justice and respect are the right words, and not just like peace, 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 and these dreams, but like there are other tribes, we've got to show our, our, you know, our red lines, speak in clarity, explain what we're going to tolerate, and hold on to our small parcel of land and control it. And if Arabs want to live with us in peace, as we say, Ahlan Usailan, you're welcome. But if you don't want to live in peace, you know, God has given us the strength to make war as well. Yes? What? You got a question. Hold on. Uh, there's somebody shy out there. Who's the shy person? Is that you? Are you raising your hand? No? Go ahead. Um, what's your view um, with the future of Israel and Ezekiel 38? Okay. Are you referring to the bones? Yeah. Okay. Um, referring to... Um, Oh, Gog and Magog? Gog and Magog coming down against, on the north against Israel, um, and Rosh, which is Russia, which is Russia coming down against Israel. Okay, good question. So your question is, how do I understand the Gog and Magog prophecies, Gog and Magog, how do, how do I see that? Great question. Real, it's a fun question. I haven't had that question in a while. Um, and let me, let me, let, let me tell you, it really depends on your kind of mental set. My mental set, I am an activist by nature, okay? I don't, I don't always concern myself with great prophecies, great, I, I, I kind of, I'm more like, I analyze my time and I ask myself what I can do. And so I kind of, Gogan Magog is, is just, as your question implies, are really unclear what you're referring to. Is it World War I and World War II? Right, is it in the future? Could be. I, I, the answer is, I don't know. But I say this in a, kind of, in a kind of way, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I also don't really, really care. I don't mean to say, I don't care because it's the Bible, it's God's word. I don't care in the sense that I'm not sure what it has to do with me exactly. I know what I have to do. I analyze the picture around me and I, and I understand. And I, I try to understand what the Bible wants me to do. It wants me to keep the commandments, be close to God, help people come back to the land of Israel, help this land be safe for, 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 you know, certainly grow my family, make sure that the country is safe for Jewish people, hope that Jewish, that the biblical culture rises up, and Jewish culture in general, by the way, also secular Jewish culture. I also want to defend that as well. Um, so I don't know what Gog and Magog is. If you ask me, the Holocaust was for us a pretty pinnacle moment. It was pretty huge. And really there was two giant, horrific wars that killed so many millions. It's really indescribable. It's really indescribable what those two wars meant. And those two wars, the first war was the liberation of the land of Israel, and the second one was the destruction of European Jewry and the recognition that this is the moment to come back to the land of Israel. Those two wars for me were pretty pinnacle 
And so that's the way I kind of understand it. But that doesn't mean that I think that this is, that is the understanding of it. It's just for my life, and, and I, live in a, I live in a lifetime that's limited. And I ask myself, what can I do to be part of this great moment? And so therefore, I don't, I don't always, I'm not stuck in, I'm, I'm concerned about that. As, by the way, I'm not so stuck on messianic questions as well. Just, it, doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't fill my, my concern. It's interesting, but, you know, all the prophecies of, of Dan, Daniel, etc., these, these, these challenging prophecies, I, I need, the book of Ezekiel, which I love, they're awesome to read, and, and there's, there's lessons there, but I, but I don't get stuck in thinking, you know, who is going to be, and what is going to... I ask myself all the time, what am I going to do to be part of this great time? Okay? You, and then you. Go. You, man. Yes. So, I just wonder what most, mostly religious Jews, feel is going to resolve this whole problem. Because in the decades that Israel has been back in the land, has been a nation again, attempt after attempt after attempt has been made by man and so many different administrations to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. Able to solve this problem. So, are most Jews expecting that men will solve this problem? Or do you actually believe that it's going to take something more than that and divine intervention is going to be what's going to resolve this? Because okay. it seems if you don't have that as your focus, that would be sad as far as I'm concerned as a Jew to think, oh, this is up to man to solve. Men can't solve this problem. Mm. So your question is, is it divine intervention or man's what actions that are going to resolve this problem? So a, a few things. This is an important question in my mind. Uh, a few things about that. First thing, the Bible is not a book, except for the Exodus per se, it's really not a book of God intervenes and takes care of everything. It's basically, other than the Exodus, it's, very, it's not like that. It's Joshua leads, fighters are chosen, they go with God. Uh, uh, you know, a great leader comes, returns people to the service of God, God is with them and there's a blessing. But really, the, the, the books of the Bible, if you think about it, are really the empowerment of man God's empowerment of man. So, so, so we don't really, as, as, as uh, believing Jews, observant Jews, we do not let, it's almost, we don't abdicate our responsibility to God. We don't say, God, you'll take care of it. It's always about action and the recognition that God gave us the strength to take that action. It's about driving that tank, firing that weapon, and praying to God beforehand, and, say, and when you have that victory, you say, God gave me that strength. So that's, that's just an important intellectual attitude that we, that we have. That's number one. I, there's another thing I wanted to tell you, which when you were asking the question, I just wanted to say to you, there's a bit of an irrational obsession. Well, we know why, but there's an irrational obsession with Israel by various peoples in the world. I'll give you an example. The conflicts in Israel right now uh, are such that there's like, a hundred deaths a year of Jews and Palestinians. In inner city Chicago, there's five, six hundred deaths of gang violence a year. Ciudad Juarez is the capital of murder in the world. It's on the border of the United States and Mexico. And, and the drug cartels kill each other mercilessly. In Syria, there are now two million people that are homeless. 500,000 people murdered, et cetera, et cetera. Our conflict, in reality, when you say, well, it's, it hasn't been solved, in many ways, it's a managed conflict. It's, there's unpleasant moments, certainly. My friends have been murdered, horrible stuff. But it's actually a small-scale fire, really, today. 
it, it's not such a giant conflagration. We've had many wars, we've pushed them back with God's help. Uh, but, but it's important to keep in mind that our conflict here is really huge because the media makes it huge. There are many other worse conflicts in this world. And it's important to kind of understand that. We, I, I, back to my first point, we see ourselves as trying to do God's work in this world inspired by, by his laws and by, 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 by his you know, spirit. Uh, but we don't give it up to God. On the other, and your point is, on the other hand, when people say, my strength and my hand will do it, you know, that is also a sin. And that's a sin of hubris, and that's a sin that, that certainly happens. But this country is moving more and more towards a recognition of, of God as part of our life. That's where we're moving. Yes, sir? So, if... This is kind of a interesting geopolitical question in my mind. Um, if Iran is so bent on like getting rid of Israel as a state, why not, for lack of a better term, face you guys mano a mano instead of just you know feeding this like proxy terrorist group of you know that's not really doing, for lack of a better term, a good job at doing what they're doing. Okay, so your question is. Why doesn't Iran just go out in a nice big old war, face yeah. me, yeah. get in the battlefield? You know, one of those, uh, you know, one of those movies that they had about like um, the the Roman wars. One of those movies, and you just see like hordes clashing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the big the big field, uh, and and that's an interesting question. And the answer is, I think, I, I think the answer is that. The Arab Muslim world has tried that recurrently and has failed recurrently. There, we faced, what, six wars? And those wars, basically, uh, they lost. And the reason that they lost is because they realized that they triggered a, a mechanism that they didn't want to trigger. Basically, they, they gathered all their, their troops and, and six Arab armies, and they jumped at us, and boink, you know, we repelled them. And that happened over and over again until they start, started realizing that the way to do it is not to go for a frontal conflict. Because something happens when the Jewish people are faced with a frontal, overwhelming, uh, what's the word that they use? Uh, 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 what kind of danger is it? Like an existential danger, right? We unite and we become crystalline and, and united. And, and that triggers a mechanism that you can't defeat the Jewish people. Better to try to divide between them. That's where the narrative war comes in. Make Jews think, oh, it's the, you know, it, I don't hate Jews. I'm just against Israel. I'm not against Israel. I'm against the settlers. I'm not against the settlers. I'm against the radical settlers. I'm just against the Hebronites. And divide and conquer. You know, make another group be the hated group and, and, and attack a little bit, attack a little bit, and win a little bit. And, and, and see where you can gain ground. Don't wake up the dragon. Don't wake up the dragon. Sting the dragon. Stab the dragon. Don't wake him up and let him get all fired up and, and breathe fire on you. Because that's not good. So attack him a little bit at a time. Sting him. The, 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 and what did, what did the Soviet, the KGB used to say? What's the word that they use? Oh, they have this word that I love, but I forget it sometimes. Um, like undermine. What do they have? It's, it's like a word like undermine. Huh? Sabotage. Yeah, no, there's a word, there's one word, it's like sabotage, it's like, uh, 
like break down, like anyway, sabotage everything. That's what they say. Like like undermine everything. And do it slowly and undermine society and send in the drugs and send in the culture and send in this. Send in all kinds of stuff to try to weaken this country. And then when it's weak, liberalism or, or a kind of unbridled liberalism, liberalism is many times a frontal effort to weaken a society, uh, emasculate society, and then pour in the, 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 you know, the, the troops right after it. And that is, uh, you know, by the way, like I'll give you an example. You know, the French. Any French people are in here? French Canadians? No. No? Huh? No, listen, the French, the French fought like lions in World War I. But at the end of World War I, they had 30 years in which they were shocked by World War I and taught pacifism for 30 years. Well, when World War II came, it was done in weeks. And they, and they put in a puppet government in, 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 in you know, in, uh, in the Vichy government. So they, like, in no time succumbed because they didn't have spirit to fight. And so today, the effort is not frontal war. <laughs> frontal war causes a great arising of spirit. They want to avert that awakening of the dragon, that rising of the spirit, to mix metaphors. So they want to avert that. They want to make sure that Israel doesn't wake up, instead falls asleep, divide and conquer, gets dispirited. See? It's a different kind of, it's a different kind of warfare. Okay? So bomb them here, bomb them there, undermine them, subvert. That was the word. Subvert. That's the, that's the KGB word. The KGB phrase is subvert everything. Okay? Subvert it. It's a very interesting thing. And so the narrative war is part of it, and many, many efforts. Amazingly, Israel continues to be incredibly vibrant, but that's the effort today. And, and the Iran, Iranians, who are, by the way, extremely clever, British term there, right? A little clever, right? I mean, that, you know, they are, they are uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that they're working, they're working on. They won't face us in a frontal war because they know they'll lose. They don't want to wake up that, that spirit. Okay, let's do like a question or two more. Uh, did you have a question yet? Yeah. Do you have one before? I Go ahead. Um, we've kind of been brushing it for a bit now. Um, and I guess it would be subjective to most Jews. Um, carrying a sidearm. I mean, if you didn't, you would, um, a lot of people would die. But yeah, at the same time, if you do, the Bible says thou shalt not kill. So kind of what's the mentality behind how does, that, how does that work? The Bible says thou shalt not kill, but it also commands us to, to have all kinds of systems of justice where, where, corp, where, where, where capital punishment is part of the, uh, the law. And then it says, gird yourself for war, for all kinds of situations, and then commanded us to war. So what is thou shalt not kill? It means that really the, the proper translation is thou shalt not murder. We're not allowed to murder people. Murder is, of course, a, a horrible offense. Uh, but uh, but but the the, the Bible says, "Ohave Hashem sin This is in the Psalms. Lovers of God detest evil. You must detest evil. Uh, and it says, "God is a man of war." And, and the, the, the the Torah commands us to defend us yourself. It says, "You must you must greatly protect your souls, protect your protect yourselves." And you have to go out to war against people who want to war against you. So, the bottom line is this. Carrying a sidearm is a type of mitzvah. Okay? A type of commandment. I, of course, carry a sidearm proudly. 
uh, and, and I've done so ever since I've come to the land of Israel. And, and on the one hand, guns are ugly things that shoot lead pellets into people. And there's something abhorrent about that. On the other hand, being armed is a great equalizer. And in Christian countries and in Muslim countries, Jews were not allowed to be armed for 2,000 years. And now we're finally back home and we defend our peoplehood. We defend our people like the Maccabees, etc. You know, many, many situations. Or, or the book, of, of, uh, of, the book of, uh, of Esther that we just read. You know, they, they stood up against the Amalekites and, and the, their supporters and fought them. That's what we have to do. And that's what ensures that, that we can live here. And that goes back to your question, ma'am. Which is like, yes, God is the, you know, he's, it's his light. But we don't sit around waiting for him to do stuff. That's not our way. Our way is to be inspired and to go to war with his, with his spirit and to defend ourselves. Yes. Yes, sir. How much influence does the Vatican have in Israel? I know we have some issues with the Vatican, right? I know. We have, uh, um... Uh, I can't answer that very in a detailed fashion just because it's, again, not so much my world. Uh, look, for, first thing I want to say something to you. Everybody wants to buy influence in the land of Israel. Many churches, the German, the Lutherans, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, the Ethiopian Church, all kinds of, all kinds of folks want to not to mention the Muslims, the Iranians, this type of Islam, that type of Islam, Jews are like, give me a, I reform conservative Jews, they will, I want the Western Wall, you want the, you know, there's tremendous battles over real estate and intellectual real estate here in the land of Israel. Why? Everybody wants to be, what's the war really about? Everybody wants to be the chosen son or daughter. Everybody wants to be God's favorite. Everybody wants to be on the right religion. Everybody wants to be the elect. Everybody wants to be the, 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 the the, the, the true son of Abraham, the true inheritor of the Bible. Everybody wants to have the true religion. Okay? Uh, you know, for Christianity, for a long time, the New Testament supplanted the Old Testament. For Islam, the, the Quran completely supplants, you know, uh, the, the whole Bible, including the Christian Bible. And, and so there's a tremendous war over control, especially since the rebirth, the period of rebirth has come along. So... Everybody wants a part of it. Everybody wants control of it. Everybody wants, wants entree into it. You know, Joshua came in and he killed 31 kings. Right? So there's 31 kings in the small land of Israel. So, was, so the explanation is, no, they were like emissaries of various kingdoms. Okay? There is always an interest in having this control in this land. This is the Holy Land. This is where God's eye is. Right? As it says in Deuteronomy. It says where God's eye is throughout the whole year. Everybody wants to be the, the, the chosen son. So the Vatican... Uh, it has its interest on Mount Zion. It has various, uh, uh, you know, it has its, uh, it, you know, it controls these, these important churches. Uh, what? Uh, the, the, the Church of the Nativity and the Church of, uh, and, and, and they have these crazy battles in the, in the, in the, in the old city, in the, the, uh, uh, the sepulchre. And then they have, you know, they have, and they're very, and, and, and they have these big swaths in different places. They have their different, their, their different interests. Um, but I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm excited for a new spirit in Christianity in general that sees that Israel is coming back and trying to figure out a way to deal with it and still appreciate their own 
tradition, but still figure out a way. And one of the things that the Catholics did in, I think, 1964 was, was uh, uh, Nostra Aetate, which is this idea of the dual covenant, which is like, look, we the Catholics are still the chosen people and we're the, this, you know, we're, the, we're the true religion, but God had some kind of deal with the Jews. And what's, what's interesting, or separate covenant, what I, what I really like about that is what I would like to see is uh, something for that, like that to happen in Islam. Like, okay, so, you know, we're still the chosen Islamic religion, but God, and it says it in four verses in the Quran, God has brought the children of Israel back to Israel, as he promised them, they're a beloved chosen people, and we've got to figure out a way to deal. And that's really the issue, right? For all of us, the, six, the, the, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, and the Six-Day War, these are challenges. Because they are also a revelation of God, which is not simple for any of us, including for Jews. Not simple. And we have to kind of reorient our theology, our understanding of the world, vis-a-vis -vis this advent of these promises actually coming true. These are big moments. And we're all trying to figure it out. We're all struggling with it. Me too, and you too. We're struggling with it, and we're trying to figure out you know, where we are in this time and how we can be part of God's great vision. My daughter's been wanting to ask a question this whole time. Yes, Leah? Um, I, I'm not sure how to say this exactly in English, but... You can say it in Hebrew also. Well, just say it in Hebrew, um, yeah. you can translate. Go ahead. Um, I'll say it in English, but there's one word that they might not understand. What, how do I think of the Torah with Chazal? You were said you were going to say something. About oh, so my, my, my daughter's asking about how do I... Well, the, the remember I wrote down here on the side something about uh, extra Jewish information. Like, so you guys are highly versed in in the Bible, and then comes maybe an Orthodox Jew. Let's say your tour, Mayor Eisenman, your tour guide, and he might he may say something. Well, according to the Jewish Kabbalah or Jewish tradition or the Medrash, we believe that, for example, Adam and Eve are buried in the uh, tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs. Well, does it say that in the Bible? No, it does not. Well, why would I believe the Jewish uh, uh, tradition to that? And sometimes Christians will say to me, it's not in the book, right? So why should I believe your, your weird thing? Like, where do you know that from? So I have a metaphor. Okay, here's my metaphor. Imagine that there's a guy who read like six books on Teddy Roosevelt. Okay? I mean, this guy is nuts about Teddy Roosevelt and he knows everything about it, Right? And so uh, one day he meets like the daughter or granddaughter of, of Teddy Roosevelt and the, uh, the granddaughter says, you know what, granddaddy used to love to read to us by the fire. He goes, no he didn't. <laughs> she goes, no, no, he really did. I read six books on the topic and never said anything like that, so no he didn't. And she's like, dude, I lived it, okay? <laughs> so the thing about the Bible is, it's got three things that, that you've got to keep in mind. Number one, it's written about our family. It's the story of our family. And two, it's written in our language. And three, we've been carrying it for 3,300 years. That's a long time to carry a book and carry a tradition about our family and in our language. And therefore, with all that, we have what I call biblical metadata. Other information. You don't have to buy it. I certainly don't ask you to buy it. But accept that there might be some info that the Jews have about this book that they have a very, very deep and long tradition on 
that may be useful or they have a deep understanding of certain things. And you don't have to buy it, but at least it will carry some intellectual weight with you. So that's the question that, 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 that my daughter was, was alluding to. Okay, folks, listen. It's, uh, it's, we're living in great times. I honor you. You guys are the big stars because you're trying to plug into this great story. And you have a very deep and, and, and fascinating uh, uh, connection to this book. Uh, I'm constantly fascinated by, by your interest in it and your place in it. And I want to tell you that God has a tremendous place for the nations in this story, especially to fight for his presence here and against the foes of Israel and foes of the Bible. And they are different and many and varied. Uh, and so we got to get out, back out there after this incredible deep education. We got to be part of this story. We got to help it help it really happen. And we can't help it happen by first coming here. Uh, 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 Non-Jews are are commanded in the book of Ezekiel, right, to come. Cheskel? No, uh, no, uh, no. Uh, excuse me. I meant Zechariah. I got confused with English. <laughs> Zechariah, right? Zechariah tells us come during the Sukkot holiday, right? The, 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 the booth's holiday. Come be part of it. Another way to do it is, is, to, is to wherever you live. Where do you live? Canada. Canada. The, in the whole Canada you live? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Ontario. Ontario. Uh, in all of Ontario. <laughs> is there a city? Oh, Brantford. Huh? Brantford. Brantford. Okay, I've been there. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I spoke in Brantford. I spoke in Brantford. I found out that that's where Wayne Gretzky's from. <laughs> I remember Wayne Gretzky. Okay, I remember seeing him. He was a, he was a, he was magic. Okay, he was magical. Anyway, so uh, so uh, even in Brantford, and certainly down a little bit south uh, in Toronto over there, uh, you know, you can buy wines from the land of Israel. You can drink. Once a week or more. Uh, uh, you know, the, the waters of the Jordan River, the, the air that Elijah breathed, you know, you can, you can be part of that and put it into your, into your bloodstream. You can make it a part of your life. And you can continue, you know, your education and your love of, of, of this stuff. And you also have to pray that God will give us a role to be part of his great redemption. All right? Thank you so much for letting me be with you tonight. So Rabbi, God bless you. All right, folks, we're back here on the Yishai Fleischer Show on the Land of Israel Network. Such an honor and a pleasure to be with you. And I'm right now in Neve Ilan, overlooking Neve Ilan is, a, is an area, a community, uh, close to Mephaseret, right, right outside of Jerusalem and overlooking the whole coastal plain. And it is uh, one of these places that just reminds you how beautiful the Land of Israel is, how much we have to be thankful for the Land of Israel and for the time that we get to serve God in the land of Israel and to ingather and to really live all those biblical promises, um, all the miraculous times that were promised to our forefathers, how could it be that we are the ones that have the, 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 the privilege, the merit, the honor, the, the, to be in the moment of, of this redemption? And the answer is we really don't know the answer. The answer is that it's just a great time and we are riding on the shoulders of giants and that we've got to maximize it for them. And that's what Passover is all about. Pesach is about redemption and believing in redemption, believing that we can be redeemed, believing that there's a, there's a God who may be ostensibly invisible, but he is uh, uh, quite visible through history. Uh, and we're living in a time where his mighty hand uh, is doing wonders. And that's exactly the time that we're living in. That's Passover. I want to wish everybody a happy a seventh day of Passover, which is the, the splitting of the Red Sea. 
an incredibly momental, momentous moment in history, the beginnings of history, the birth of the nation of Israel. And uh, I love, I love the, uh, the Seder is one thing, but I love the seventh day of Passover, which is try to relive that, uh, that moment of the splitting of the Red Sea. So lots of blessings to you from the Ve'ilan Israel. Hope to see you soon. Please write me an email, yishai at thelandofisrael.com, or connect to me on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, I'm not as active as I should be on, uh, Instagram, etc. Uh, I try to be in all those places. Uh, so please follow me, so put, on, put in a, a uh, 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 you know, high uh, rating if you like the show on iTunes, etc., and the, those places. And in general, I want to wish you lots of blessings uh, from from the hills of Jerusalem, from the land of Israel, uh, from uh, from Passover here in the land, which is it's a festival holiday, which means it's an, an in-gathering to Jerusalem, a, a pilgrimage holiday. I want to wish you blessings from here. I want to thank Tabitha, Ben, and Moshe for hooking up and sending this program out. I want to thank, again, uh, the good folks at the Land of Israel Network. I want to thank the folks at Tchelet, T-E-K-H-E-L-E-T, for having special stuff during the Passover holiday learning about Tchelet and their factory in, um, in Mishor Adumim uh, and I want to thank the folks at Hebron we had a fabulous festival yesterday uh, with music and, and, and all kinds of activities it was really great and uh, the uh, Yitzchak Hall was open and so too it is today and in general the land of Israel is open and it's welcoming you God bless you wherever you are stay tuned stay connected stay part of the story tune in he bro- he's broadcasting 24-7 all we have to do is plug in uh, to the channel plug into the broadcast and we're part of it we are part of something really great you are part of something really great thank you for being part of my life I hope I'm part of yours and all the best from Yerushalayim Shalom Shalom